This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope you're all doing well. Funny, isn't it, how you quickly forget about the coldness of winter once things start to warm up and you see that first robin in your yard. I guess you could call it seasonal amnesia. Anyway, we've been gearing up and we are ready for gardening. My husband and I just acquired two more rain barrels, bringing the total on our property to four. That's basically one at each corner of our house. Did you know your average roof can produce 600 gallons of water with just one inch of rainfall? Now that's a whole lot of water. We have a goal this year. Instead of letting it run down our driveway and out into the street, we're going to capture it and use it. Last year with the drought, it was rough going, lugging watering cans across our one-acre property to water native plants and shrubs. Although I have to admit it was excellent weight training, I will not be doing that again. This year, we are installing soaker hoses, which can be attached to our regular water hose, and that is going to make life a whole lot easier. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Douglas Tallamy about his brand new book on oak trees. And now for some sobering news. The United States is dealing with one of the largest salmonella outbreaks involving birds in several decades, according to federal wildlife authorities. The outbreak is nationwide, and large numbers of bird deaths have been reported in at least a dozen states, including North Carolina. Salmonella is a highly contagious and usually fatal bacterial infection. It spreads quickly when birds congregate together at feeders. A salmonella outbreak during migration can quickly become widespread, as infected migrating birds can pass the disease to other species flocks as they fly further north to their summer breeding grounds. To avoid salmonella, bird feeders need to be regularly cleaned and disinfected. Clean and then soak the feeder in one part bleach to ten parts water for at least 15 minutes. Allow the feeder to completely dry. A damp or wet bird feeder causes the bacteria to grow on the seeds. Salmonella is also passed along when fecal lands on the ground below the feeder. Birds will sometimes eat seed that has fallen to the ground, and if it is contaminated with infected fecal, that bird can become sick with salmonella. Moving your feeders to different locations in the yard can help avoid this problem. 
With the pandemic forcing all of us to stay home, record numbers of Americans have been putting out feeders to enjoy the birds. But avian scientists are asking Americans to stop feeding birds until migration has been completed. Thankfully, migration is nearly at an end. Salmonella is easy to spot. You will see the bird standing on the ground looking lethargic. The bird will not alert and fly away at your approach because it is too sick to react. If you find a bird in your yard that is sick with salmonella, please contact your local wildlife rehabilitator or go to animalhelpnow.org. Salmonella can be treated, but the bird needs immediate care. A fatality can occur in less than 72 hours. And now let's talk a little bit about preventing drought. For those of us who love gardening and helping the wildlife in our backyards, last summer's drought proved a major roadblock to providing the water needed for our flowers, birds, and pollinators. Wells went dry, restrictions were placed on the use of outdoor water, and incidents of brush fires were on the rise. And despite all of the snow received over the winter, New England is still experiencing drought and drought-like conditions, according to the USDA drought maps, which may be setting us up for another very hot and dry summer. If you follow the USDA drought maps, you can see that, ironically, the most impacted areas are close to large bodies of water, like lakes, rivers, and the ocean, with some of the most extreme dryness occurring along the Connecticut River. Why is that? As I mentioned in a previous episode, climatologists are saying we have reached a tipping point regarding impervious surfaces. The unchecked installation of impervious surfaces like asphalt driveways and parking lots is causing rainfall to race as fast as it can along paved roads and sewers to large bodies of water. Impervious surfaces prevent the rain from staying put and being reabsorbed into the ground to regenerate the soil and the watersheds in our local areas, as it has normally done for generations. When water is slowed down and held in our yards and communities, it soaks into the soil and transpiration occurs. Water vapor rises upwards, giving us the formation of clouds and local rainstorms. We get plenty of rain, trees and plants grow lush and green, and we experience no droughts. The water table is recharged. The birds and bees are happy. This is what is called a small water system. Water sluiced away in high-speed fashion to remote areas results in fewer but bigger and deadlier storms that cause flooding, followed by periods of extended drought. Drought can have a severe impact on birds and other wildlife. Birds, mammals, and turtles depend upon fresh water from creeks, streams, and ponds to survive. And when these dry up, animals are often forced to migrate across busy roads. Birds must leave behind their nests of young to search for new territories with water. Birds can also be compelled to migrate south earlier than anticipated, resulting in a perilous migration that is out of sync with food resources. Drought can halt the production of berries from bushes that are much needed by hungry birds. Tree nuts are often in short supply during drought-like conditions, affecting the survival of mammals like bears. Flowering plants stop producing nectar, which is vital to pollinators like butterflies and bumblebees. And now we're hearing a new term being used by climatologists. It's called flash drought. A flash drought is a rapid-onset drought that occurs when there is a worsening of conditions by two full categories on the drought intensity scale. According to researchers at NOAA, 
high temperatures, lack of rain, high winds, low humidity, and very little cloud cover over a period of four weeks can cause a region or state to go from abnormally dry to moderate drought to severe drought. The effects of a flash drought are severe. It's important to keep in mind that there is above-ground drought and underground drought. Above-ground drought is easy to spot, but underground drought is silent and out of sight and also has very serious implications. Underground drought is usually the product of weeks, months, and even years of reduced amounts of water percolating down to aquifers. That's when wells start drying up and drills may have to travel several hundred feet down to find water. According to renowned water scientist Dr. Michael Krachevic, as more and more wetlands are sold for rock-bottom prices and paved over to build big box stores, we lose vital opportunities to store and hold precious rainwater in our local areas. In addition, the more rainwater races away from local communities, the more water must be pumped for agriculture, resulting in huge zones of depleted groundwater. You can break the vicious cycle of drought and flooding by slowing down the water on your property. Pull up the asphalt on your driveway and replace it with the non-impervious products that are now available. Install rain barrels to catch the overflow from your roof and use it to water the flowers. Create rain gardens to hold rainwater where it falls so it absorbs back into the soil to regenerate the water table. Protect wooded areas. A wooded area contains a dense network of roots growing 20 to 30 feet downward, turning the soil to a spongy consistency that can hold 90% of rainfall. Compare this to a lawn, which immediately loses 90% of rainfall due to runoff, not to mention the fertile soils that are washed away with it. Kill your lawn and grow a native meadow. Put a pond in your backyard for rainwater retention. And keep bird baths filled with cool, clean water for your feathered friends and other critters in the backyard. By doing these things, you will be helping to restore your regional climate. And most importantly, talk to your local government officials about development in your area. Voice your concerns about the overabundance of impervious surfaces in your town. Tell your officials it's time to take a look at antiquated water management policies. This includes the outdated notion that rainwater is a waste product that must be gotten rid of as quickly as possible. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the yellow-billed cuckoo. This slender bird with tawny gray and rusty-colored wings, white breast, and bright white spots underneath its long black tail has, you guessed it, a yellow bill. The yellow-billed cuckoo is a shy bird and stays well-hidden, seeking out the privacy of leafy and shady deciduous forests, fruit orchards, and dense thickets near water. In other words, riparian habitat, that zone of vegetation that hugs rivers and streams. These reclusive birds can usually be heard but not seen, making the species a real challenge for bird watchers. Even more challenging, the bird has six distinct vocalizations, which adds to the confusion for bird enthusiasts. They stutter, they croak, they bellow, they produce a noise that sounds like a knock on a door, and they can coo like a dove. Truth be told, trying to identify this bird in the wild can make you go a little, well, cuckoo. They are also well known for responding to the sound of thunder during a rainstorm with a loud, boisterous call. 
This is how the bird received the name rain crow. This bird engages in asynchronous egg laying, meaning the female lays her eggs up to five days apart. This results in very intense feeding of the first hatchling, who is virtually ready to leave the nest by the time the second egg hatches. Cuckoos are smart and know how to deal with predators. When threatened, the birds engage in what is called a distraction display, in which they wildly flap their wings in order to lure the predator away from their nest of young. Yellow bills are also famous for laying their eggs in the nests of other bird species, like robins and catbirds. This occurs when insect food like cicadas and gypsy moths are plentiful, and the female bird is producing so many eggs, she isn't sure where to put them. Cuckoo parents divide nest responsibilities equally, both taking turns building the nest and incubating the eggs. The yellow-billed has one of the fastest fledge times of any songbird. Within a mere 17 days, the egg is laid and hatched, and the youngster is fully feathered and ready to leave the nest, a time frame that is nothing short of amazing. Cuckoos like to eat big caterpillars and are one of the few species that can stomach spiky caterpillars. One of their favorite foods is the tent caterpillar. In addition, a single cuckoo can eat 100 webworms in a single day. One more reason why their nestlings grow so big so quickly. The yellow-billed cuckoo gets around. A relative of the roadrunner, this bird's breeding ground encompasses southeastern Canada and nearly all land east of the Rocky Mountains. They also have established breeding areas in northern Mexico and the greater Antilles. Their overwintering habitats include Bolivia and Argentina. The oldest known yellow-billed cuckoo lived to be five years old. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce award-winning author, Dr. Douglas Tallamy. Dr. Tallamy is an entomologist at the University of Delaware and the author of three books that are changing the way we think about our backyards. The first book, Bringing Nature Home, shows us that by planting native trees, we can help produce the thousands of caterpillars necessary to feed baby birds. In his second book, Nature's Best Hope, Dr. Tallamy urges us to cut the size of our lawns in half and plant natives to create biodiversity to help our wildlife recover from habitat loss. His third and latest book, The Nature of Oaks, which we will talk about today, is all about the sturdy and resilient oak tree and the astonishing amount of life it supports in the ecosystem. Dr. Tallamy's books have sparked a national conversation about the importance of planting native trees and plants in our gardens in order to sustain our planet. Doug, it's great to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Now, most of my listeners, if not all of my listeners, have by now read your first two books, Bringing Nature Home and Nature's Best Hope. And I'm sure they're very eager and excited to hear about your third book about oak trees, The Nature of Oaks. Could you maybe tell our listeners why you decided to write about oaks? Yes, I decided to write about oaks because in terms of their ecological contributions to our yards, to any of our human-dominated landscapes, they are the most important trees in North America. There are four things that each landscape needs to accomplish. 
you know, we want to design landscapes that contribute to local ecosystem function instead of detract from it. And that's it's kind of a new goal. So there's four things that have to happen if we're going to achieve that goal. The first one is you have to support the life around you on that landscape. So you have to have a viable food web. Plants capture the energy from the sun and then they turn it into food, which is then in their leaves. Well, if they don't pass it on to other animals, the food's locked up in the plants and that's, that's not a food web. That's a dead end system and you don't have anything else living there. So support a food web is number one. We also have to pull carbon out of the air and capture it, sequester it, get it out of harm's way. So plants are doing that. They're building their tissues out of the carbon and then they pump extra carbon that they capture through their roots into the ground. So our soils are brown or black because of the carbon that that, uh, plant roots have deposited there. That has to happen. We have to have a lot of carbon capture on our, our properties. We also have to support complex diverse communities of pollinators, particularly native bees. We've got 4,000 species of native bees. They did nearly all the pollination in this country before we brought over the honeybee. We need more than honeybee. We need those native bees and we need them everywhere. People think, you know, you keep hearing, well, we need pollinators because they pollinate a third of our crops. It's actually about a 12th of our crops. But then they think, well, if I don't live next to a farm, I don't need pollinators. Most people don't live next to a farm. So that's not a reason that resonates with me. We need pollinators because they pollinate 80% of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. Where do we need those pollinators? Everywhere we need plants, which is everywhere, including our yards. And the fourth thing that our yards have to do is manage a watershed. Everybody lives in a watershed. Everybody. Nobody has the ethical right to design a landscape that destroys that, that watershed. And of course, we haven't been thinking in those terms, but, but now we are. So those are the four things our landscapes have to accomplish. Oaks are the best tree genus in the country at accomplishing three of them. So three out of four is pretty good. The only reason they're not the best at supporting pollinators is they are wind pollinated. So (laughs) it's not their fault. But, you know, there are some bees, apparently, that are using oak pollen for food. They don't move it to the female flowers, so they're not actually pollinating. But it it might be a bigger resource for bees than we think. So let's just say oaks are doing three and a half of those things. Well, the reason I wrote the book is people don't know that. They think, you know, a tree is a tree. They're all the same. And it doesn't matter whether it's from Asia or whether it's from Europe. And it's just there as a decoration. I'm trying to generate enough knowledge that will generate the interest that then generates compassion reconnects us with nature so that we can appreciate that oaks in our yards. And if we don't have an oak, we can put one in there. An oak is a, it's a community of living things. It's not just a tree. So what I do is I follow the life that is on the oaks in my yard through every month of the year. One of the messages I try to get across, I don't know if I achieved it or not, is that all of the life that's there is there only because I planted the oak. You know, it makes it sound like I'm I'm God, I created the life. No, but I did provide the opportunity for that life to be in my yard. And if I hadn't done that, like my neighbors, they don't have a single oak tree on their yard, then the life isn't there. So it's a pretty easy thing we can do to generate an awful lot of life, an awful lot of ecosystem services. And that's why I read the book. (laughs) That's great. So tell me now, why the oak tree? I mean, why? I think you mentioned in the book that it... It offers sustenance to something like 900 different types of Lepidoptera, I mean, which is amazing. But, you know, why not the pine tree or the native cherry tree? Why, what is it about the oak that is so beneficial to so many creatures? Yeah, that figure is up to 950 now. So the, the figure in the, in the book is already out of date. Oaks do support more caterpillars than any other tree genus in the, in the country. And before I tell you why they do, 
let's review why we need caterpillars. They transfer more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of creature, any other plant eater. So a landscape without a lot of caterpillars is a landscape without birds. It's a landscape with all the things that require those caterpillars, which is a tremendous number of things. Okay, why do oaks support more caterpillars? Well, we're not sure, <laughs> but it's a combination of several things. They protect themselves chemically with tannins. Now, tannins are not toxic. They retard the absorption of protein. So you can eat a tannin without dying. And if you come up with the adaptations that allow you to get around that protein absorption problem, then you can eat oaks. And apparently that's easier to do than for some of the other plant chemicals that are out there. So for example, cucurbitacins that are in our, our cucumbers and our squashes, that's the most bitter compound known to man. And uh, there are very few things that can eat cucurbitacins and live to talk about it. Cherries are filled with cyanide, tobacco's filled with nicotine. I mean, they're, they're pretty potent things that are out there. Well, oaks are full of tannins, and I guess it's just easier for insects to adapt to them. That's one reason. Another reason is it's a huge genus. We've got 91 species of, of oaks in this country. There are 400, something like 435 in the entire world. And they have the biggest geographic distribution of any tree, all the way across Europe, Eurasia, all through North America. Well, not up in Canada. They're not, not a northern tree. But all the way down into northern Colombia, all through Central America. So it's a huge distribution. And when you're distributed all over the place, it's the opportunity for a lot of things to adapt to you. So if you put those three things, well, they're also, they're also very persistent. We call them apparent sources of food. So a single oak tree can live 900 years. Typically, it's going to be you know three or 400 years unless we, we mess them up. But that's a long time for an individual to be exposed out there, which again, provides a lot of opportunity for adaptation. Compare that to, uh, say, a spring beauty, which is around for, what, three weeks each year. So it's, it's not a very long period of time. Those are the major reasons that insects have been able to adapt to oaks better than, than other other things. Oaks don't want to be eaten. They're trying to protect themselves, but they're big, they're strong. They can handle a lot of herbivories. It doesn't seem to hurt them very much. And we're glad that they do pass on that much energy because if they didn't, we'd have far fewer living things around. Right. And of, of course, the big link to birds is parent birds need lots of caterpillars to feed their nestlings. Many thousands. Right. It's hard to imagine that, but you know, we always use the chickadee as an example because Somebody sat there and counted them all one, one day, but it's six to 9,000 caterpillars to get them to the point where they leave the nest. And then they continue to feed them caterpillars another 21 days after that. So you're talking about tens of thousands of caterpillars to make one clutch of a bird that's a third of an ounce, which is, that's the weight of four pennies. So if you don't have those caterpillars in your yard, you don't have breeding chickadees because they're not, they're not flying five miles down the road to the nearest woodlot. They only forage about 50 meters from the nest. And we do want birds to be able to breed in our yards because that's all that's left in so many places. So how do we do that? The best way to do this, put the plants that make the most caterpillars in your yard. And you know what people complain about now? I give a talk and they say, I can't find those caterpillars. They don't say, oh, I've got too many caterpillars. They can't find them. They say, that's right. The birds have eaten them. You know, they're eating, they're eating hundreds and hundreds every day. No wonder you can't find them. So don't worry about too many caterpillars. As a matter of fact, with insect declines, we're all worried about too few caterpillars now. And it's really no accident that baby birds are in the nest hungry the same time that caterpillars are appearing on the trees. 
exactly. That, yeah, that is no coincidence. It's also the same time that the migrants are moving north, exactly when the brand new leaves come out, followed by all those caterpillars that are eating those leaves. It's the caterpillars that are fueling, particularly the spring migration. People say, well, the birds are eating seeds and berries. The migrants aren't eating seeds. They're insectivores. That's why they migrated to begin with. They do eat some berries in the fall, but in the spring, there aren't any berries. The, the plants haven't made them yet. So it's all about insects, primarily caterpillars. That's another big concern. It's one of the concerns about climate change is decoupling the production of caterpillars with the migration of, of birds. So no, it's not a coincidence. And then, of course, in May and June, uh, the residents will, will breed, and that's when they need tens of thousands of caterpillars. That's per bird, per pair of birds. We want communities of birds in our neighborhoods. So, you know, how many caterpillars does that take? A lot. Now, you bust a lot of myths in your book about the oak tree. Oh, they take too long to grow. They're so messy. Look at all those leaves and all those acorns. Could you maybe explain why that so-called mess is so essential to the ecosystem? Life is messy. <laughs> You know, living things are messy. Our kids are messy during a certain period of their life. We don't throw them out. <laughs> you know, people are primarily talking about the leaves. Oak leaves last longer than any other type of leaf. Well, most other types of leaves, up to up to three years to break down. And, and so, you know, people get upset. Oh, I want to get rid of them. Well, leaf litter is, you know, it's another gift. There are more species that live in, in healthy soils than above the ground. But that soil needs a blanket on it in the form of leaf litter to maintain the nutrients, the carbon, and the, the moisture level that fuels the life in the soil. That's leaf litter, but leaves from maple trees or, or tulip trees or birch trees, they break down really fast. They don't make it through the summer. And then you've got bare ground. Oak leaves don't break down that fast. They do make it through the summer and that gives you that covering that allows all that life to happen underground. Why do you want that life underground? Well, that's what's transferring the nutrients to the roots of your plants, to the roots of the trees. It's just part of the entire cycle that's happening on your yard. If you throw out your leaves every year, those leaves hold the nutrients that the plant used the year before, and then it's got to take up new nutrients from the soil. You know, if you do that year after year, you've depleted your, your soils. If you keep all the leaves that fall on your property on your property, just the way we want to keep water that falls on our property on our property and let it recycle, then you've got a closed system. You don't have to add any fertilizer. As a matter of fact, most of our trees don't want any fertilizer. They want the correct levels of nutrients that our, our leaf litter delivers. But, you know, I, people say, well, it's going to kill my lawn. And, and that's true. So what I'm suggesting is that we have half the area of lawn that we currently have. We've got 40 million acres right now. Let's cut that in half to 20 million acres. Keep the lawn to the areas where you walk on your property and then put the leaves in, in your beds. My son bought a house, a new house, a couple of years ago. And the first fall, he called me up and he said, Dad, I've got too many leaves. What should I do with them? I said, put them in your flower bed for your flower beds. And he said, I don't have enough flower beds. I said, Exactly. That is the solution. Increase the number and size of your beds and you will have room for your, for your leaves. That's particularly important if we're trying to keep those caterpillars on our property because most of them, they grow on the trees, but when it comes time to complete the development to pupate or form a chrysalis, they drop from the tree and they do that in the ground, they tunnel under the ground or they spin a, a cocoon in the leaf litter. And when we rake up all our leaves, the ground gets sunbaked and compacted. So it's like a rock the caterpillars can't get underground. And then there's no leaf litter to, to spin their cocoon in. The way we keep our yards 
neat under our trees, even if we have the right trees, that becomes an ecological trap. We're calling in the moths, they lay their eggs, the caterpillars develop and fall down and die. We need beds under our trees. And that's the way to reduce the size of your lawn. Now, in your book, you talk about how your wife and your, your you and your wife work really hard to clear all the invasives off your property, only to find these little oak seedlings growing. And you couldn't tell where the acorns were coming from. Could you maybe talk about those wily blue jays for a second? Okay. Yeah, that was a big mystery early on at huge multiflora rose bushes. And if we pulled them out, it disturbed the soil. And, you know, then we'd go on to, to the next one. Well, the first spring after we started doing that, I noticed, yeah, oaks popping up and occasionally a beech tree popping up. We didn't have any oaks that were large enough to produce acorns on our property. And we didn't have any beaches at all. And I knew that the closest oaks, I still don't know where there's a, a reproducing beach, but the closest oaks were about two miles down the road. It was a mystery to me until I remember I was getting a haircut. I was in a, in a barbershop and they had a photography magazine there. And I opened up and here's a picture with a blue jay flying with an acorn in its mouth. And I said, aha. So I, I looked into that. And it turns out that, yeah, there's an ancient mutualism between jays of, of all kinds. We have nine species of jays in this country and oaks. The oaks provide acorns, which is the winter food for, for jays, the winter food for a lot of things, but jays in particular, and they take the oaks and then they'll fly, you know, a good distance from the tree. They tap that acorn beneath the ground. And the idea is they're going to go find it during the winter and, and eat it. Well, during a mast year, the, the year when the oaks are making a lot of acorns, a single jay can bury 4,500 acorns in a single season. Well, they only remember where one in four are. So they've actually planted 3,300 oak trees because they forgot where it was and, and it will germinate. And of course, if, if the sharp shin hog comes and eats the jay, they don't retrieve any of those. And then you get a lot of oak germination. So it's jays that allow oaks to move faster around the world than any other, other plant genus. So for example, when the glaciers came and pushed all our plants down to the Gulf Coast, and then they retreated, what came back first? The oaks, because the jays were moving them faster than anything else. So yes, it's a very cool story. So now studies are showing uh, right now that your average American homeowner can move anywhere from four to seven times in the lifetime of the family, with the average being basically four to five. Could you maybe address that? Like, what would you say to a new homeowner who's just purchased a home and is just moving in? You know how we all like to put our own personal stamp on our new property and a lot of damage can get done in the yard trying to make it suitable to our tastes. Is there, is there any advice you could offer a new homeowner? Well, you know, I'm trying to change the entire culture of the way everybody landscapes. So right now, the people are moving four or five times and they move into a house that has a landscape. That landscape is the, the blueprint of the old version of what our landscapes used to look like or are supposed to look like. Plants are just decorations. The prettier, the better. If you get them from all over the world, that's great. And we don't want anything alive on our property because it might eat the plants and ruin our postcard type of, of landscape. That's not about fitting into uh, the local ecosystem. That's about destroying the local ecosystem because we've considered us to be totally separate from nature. And, you know, most people don't have any idea that we're a part of nature, we're products of it, and that we're totally dependent on it. So why not create a landscape that is that is completely dead? It's pretty, but it's dead. And if you move around and everybody's got a dead landscape, there's nothing you can do. You know, you, you're right in there. All you have to do is, is hire somebody to mow the grass and everything fits in. 
I just want to change the whole approach so that we we now that ecological landscaping becomes the norm and you can move around a hundred times, but the house you move into will also have an ecologically responsible landscape. I would like to rework the lawn care industry into an ecological landscape, interesting ecological gardening. So you can still, you know, young folks that are moving around, raising their kids, doing the soccer and everything else, they don't have time to, to garden. They, very few gardeners there. They hire somebody. Well, I want that somebody to know how to take care of the yard, know how to do the four things I talked about earlier, know which plants to put in, know how to take care of them. But all these yards, are they're not maintenance free. You know, native plants does not mean you never have to take care of it. So we're just shifting the inventory of what's sold in our nurseries and the choices that we make, that our plant choices matter. If we don't choose the right plants, we don't have life on our yard. We're going to change all that. But otherwise, we can still move around and we still don't have to garden. We just hire somebody who's going to know how to do it. I just wanted to talk a minute about destination trees. I don't know know if you've ever been to the Maxfield Parish House in Plainfield, New Hampshire. It's a 45-acre property. The artist Maxfield Parish used to paint all his incredible paintings. But I've never been there. Yeah, there are a dozen oak trees and some of them are 400 years old. I mean, we're talking like, what, 1620? Was it the Mayflower was just leaving England at that point? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah. You know, just really super old. It's just an incredible place to walk. You get a real sense of history just standing under an oak tree like that. There are about a dozen oaks right now. So these destination trees, I think, I don't know what your opinion is, but they, I think they play a vital role in keeping people connected to the importance of trees and their longevity. Do you have any trees in your area that are considered championship oaks? Yeah, we've got William Penn trees, the, you know, trees that he signed, whatever he signed under uh, near Philadelphia. There's, there's uh, several of them, actually. There's one not far from where I live and they sell the acorns for uh, like $1.50 each and they make some money every year. And I have a William Penn tree offspring on my property. It's a white oak. So you're absolutely right. People love superlatives. So they love the biggest, they love the oldest. We really do appreciate age. And we treat those trees as if there's something special. The only thing special about those trees is that we did chop them down. Our landscapes used to be covered with trees like that. There were those old ancient giants, which themselves play really important ecological roles in our forests. Oaks are supposed to grow 300 years, have 300 years of stasis and 300 years of decline. And during each one of those periods, they're performing different roles. That period of decline, the trunk is often hollow. It's still alive because the living portion of a trunk is on the outside, but it's in decline and and there's, you know, nooks and crannies all over the tree. That's when everything's living in it. That's when your woodpeckers and your bears are hibernating and and, uh, and it's a very valuable thing. There are fungi that only grow in the internal spaces of dying oak trees and you don't have those giants dying. You you lose those those fungi. So I think in, in England, there are 2,300 species of animals and, and plants, mostly fungi, that are associated with oaks. And as the English oaks disappear, which they are, 2,300 species in trouble because of it. You know, we, we just read that in France, they're rebuilding Notre Dame with uh, the giant oak beams. They're going to take, I think it's 3,000 mature oak trees cut them down to get those beams to do that. It's probably the very last of those giants in all of France. That's what the English Navy was built out of. 
it was one of the primary reasons that that England was so interested in our, the colonies here because they had run out of the big trees to make the masts for their ships, which of course they dominated the world with. So it, you know the oaks have had a huge impact on our culture and our history. But when you chop down a 400 oak, you're not going to get another one for another 400 years. So those are those are limited resources, declining resources. And of course, we've done that all over the place. Now, you just mentioned your acorn that you bought for $1.50. What's the best way to get an oak tree for your yard? You, I was going to suggest mm. that, you know, I sneak over to my neighbor's yard in the dark of night with a flashlight, and maybe scoop up some acorns. I bet if you if you asked him during the day, he'd be happy to give them to you. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. When's the best time to plant an oak or the best way to plant an oak? The younger, the better. So you can't get younger than an, than an acorn. There are different challenges if you plant an acorn, but if it germinates and grows, you will have the healthiest tree because it will never have been moved. Its root system will never have been disturbed. And the first thing it does, the first year of growth, it builds 10 times more roots than above ground leaf matter. That's what it's doing is building this big root system. And that's why people have this opinion that oaks grow slowly because in the first year they didn't reach five feet tall. No, they're two the little things in the first, first couple of years, they're building that giant root system. But once it's built, then they do take off. The oaks that I planted on our property 20 years ago as acorns are now over 50 feet tall. And you know they're real trees. They're still babies compared to that 900 year old, but they're performing all their ecological services. And they have been for a long time. I've got a picture of a pin oak in its first year, just popped its head above the ground there. And there's a caterpillar standing on the ground eating the leaves, which just shows how fast and how important their contributions to our food webs are. Your oaks start to contribute immediately. You don't have to wait a long time. I do hear, I'm not going to plant an oak because I won't live long enough to enjoy it. And if it has to be 400 years old before you enjoy it, you're right. You're not going to live long enough, but it doesn't have to be. You can enjoy what your oak is doing at every single stage. If you do plant it as an acorn, I have learned, now I planted a lot straight into the ground and, and you know, a lot of them survive, but the mice and the voles over the winter love to eat that acorn. The white oak group germinates in the fall, so you have to plant that in the fall. The red oak group germinates in the spring, so you can take red oak acorns into, in, into you know, put them in a Ziploc bag with peat moss. Use peat moss because then it keeps fungus out. And put it in the refrigerator, keep it damp, keep it in the refrigerator all winter long, and then plant it in the spring. Then you don't have mouse troubles. But what I do now is I put the acorns, particularly the white oak group, in flower pots and let them germinate in the flower pot. And then the goal is to protect them from the mice over the winter still because they get into those flower pots and, and eat them. So if you can figure out clever ways to do that, you'll have a tree. Then once it's in the ground, you have to protect them from the deer. The deer love oaks just the way our caterpillars do. So I put a little deer cage around it until it gets past the point where the deer can eat it to death. You've got to do that for any plant that deer like, which is most of them. And it's worth it because again, that's, you know, I call oaks keystone species. If you remember the, the Roman arch, the keystone is the stone in the middle of the arch. And if you take the the keystone out, the arch collapses. I call oaks keystone species because if you take them out of your food web, the food web collapses. 
they're not the only keystone species out there, but just 5% of our native plants are making 75% of the caterpillar food that drives those food webs. 14% are making 90% of the caterpillar food and oaks lead the way there. I'd like to encourage people to think about building an ecological house on your property. The oaks are the two by fours of that house. It's not the only thing. I mean, your house is not completed with two by fours, but you can't build a house out of wallpaper. And that's what we've been doing for the last hundred years. But after you've got your two by fours, then you can you know, put the other parts of the house in there. But, but the two by fours are not optional. They're essential. You got to have them. I was just reading in your book about the long list of creatures that benefit from the oak tree, like bears, raccoons, and opossums too, which is great to hear because I want opossums in my yard to eat all the ticks. Oh, well, good they, luck with uh, that. <laughs> thousands of ticks. We have a possum that lives under our back porch. <laughs> Those bigger mammals, the, the, the meso carnivores, and then the big ones like the bears, they all need places to live. And in the old days, there were big trees that provided those places. So they're rare these days. You can't put that 400-year-old oak in your yard, but you can start the process. And that's what we have to do now is start the process. It's not just bears and things that need the holes. You know, big long list of creatures depend on the acorns that oaks make. And it's a good thing we had oaks when the chestnut light came roaring through here and killed all of our chestnuts and eliminated the production of chestnuts. That's, that was another real important source of protein that kept our big mammals around. And if we hadn't had oaks making acorns, we would have lost a lot of those, those animals. So oaks, oaks have been vital in that regard, but birds, all kinds of birds require acorns, tip mice and the blue jays we talked about and flickers and red belly woodpeckers and towhees, ducks, a lot of ducks eat acorns, particularly the wood duck loves acorns, something you wouldn't think about. But if there's an oak branch hanging over a pond, they'll go diving down there and get every acorn that falls, falls in. So a lot of creatures depend on the, on the acorns. And then we've got that 950 species of caterpillars that they're making that drive the food webs, uh, particularly those bird food webs that are so vital. Let's say I want to put a acorns in my yard to grow or, or in a pot or maybe even buy a, a foot tall oak seedling somewhere. Do I have to worry about hybridized oaks or GMO oaks? Is there something I can look for that would tell me whether it's true native versus GMO? I don't know if we have any GMO oaks. Have you ever heard of that? Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't think there's any anybody has genetically engineered our oaks. There are some cultivars around, but the cultivar that is most common is a, a fastigiate, a columnar Quercus robar. That's the English oak. So I would discourage you from buying an English oak anyway. We've got 91 species of North American oaks. Why we need to buy Chinese oaks and English oaks is beyond me. And the cultivar that makes it columnar instead of big spreading tree is, is one that you can go and buy. So the problem with buying a non-native plant that's a member of a native genus is that those non-native members of that genus are not as good at making those caterpillars. There's, there's a 65% loss of, of caterpillars when you do that. If you buy a regular non-native plant that is not related to anything here, then you've got a 75 plus percent loss in, in uh, the insects that are produced. And I can cite those figures because we did that experiment, a great big five-year common garden experiment at the University of Delaware. So again, if you're trying, if you're planting an oak so that you can bring life to your yard, why not go straight species, which is going to be the best at doing that? And you say in your book not to go crazy with nitrogen-based fertilizers. Oaks seem to do quite well in just plain old dirt. 
oaks and many other North American plants, particularly in the north. Remember when the glaciers came down, they, they scraped our, our soils clean and the plants that have been here for the last 10,000 years are adapted to nitrogen poor soils. So you can actually kill a tree by fertilizing it. I learned that when I was young. <laughs> I figured, well, the more fertilizer, the better. And what happens is they grow so fast that it splits the bark and they die. The bark growth can't keep up with the cambium growth. And yeah, who knew? But so it's just not necessary. Gardening is easier than we make it. You know, who was adding fertilizer to the oaks before we came around? They don't need it. They don't need it. So now you mentioned in your book, and you mentioned earlier, too, in, in the interview about the three and a half ways that oaks are beneficial. And you did mention watershed management. Could you talk about that? We just had a really scary drought in New England this past summer. And it looks like mm. we're, we're ramping up for yet another dry summer season, which is. Well, I hope not. I hope you get some rain. Yeah, we, we had <laughs> you can no- have some of our rain. We've had way too much. <laughs> yeah, you can send it over here. I mean, we had no spring rain to speak of, which is highly unusual. Oh, geez, yeah. that's terrible. Well, you know, it's it's the large root systems of any plant that manages the watershed, keeps the water on on site. One of the things that oaks are are so good at with their big canopies is breaking the pressure from downpours. When you get, you know, millions of raindrops pounding on the ground, it actually does compress the soil, it compacts the soil. So what's happening with an oak is that it it hits the leaves, the canopy of the tree first and breaks the power of that falling rain. And then it just drips down. So in that sense, it is better for the soil. Those leaves help prevent runoff. So they're absorbing tons and tons of water as opposed to uh, having it rush off. You know, when we have highly manicured lawns, particularly in the summertime, the ground is sunbaked underneath, you get a pounding rain, it all runs right off. You want to encourage infiltration. And with the big roots of oaks underground, they've got it all broken up into these channels. And it really encourages the absorption of water that gets down to the water table instead of runs off. And of course, it's cleaning the water as it does that. And once it's in the water table, then then we can use it. You know, that's what wells are all about. But they've got to be there. So oaks are not going to make it rain. But when it does rain, they will help to keep the rain that falls on your property on your property. Right. Yeah. And retaining rainwater is the big challenge right now. I think we have too many impervious surfaces that causes the water to sluice right down to the nearest sewer and the nearest river. And, you know, the water we get up here in New Hampshire ends up forming a rainstorm down in East Hartford, Connecticut. So we don't see the benefit because we don't have a small water system anymore like we've had for generations. Right. The roof of your house is impervious. Your driveway is impervious. Your sidewalk is. All the roads are impervious. And you know what? So is your lawn. Not to the extent that the paved areas are, but uh, to a much bigger extent than people think. Turf grass, the roots are very shallow, you know, two or three inches at the most. That's no way to absorb water and get it to infiltrate. And again, in the summertime when it's dry, uh, it really just, just runs off. So reducing the area you have in lawn, putting in, in the, uh, you know, those real powerhouse trees into your yard is a great way to bring life back to your yard, but also manage your watershed. Right. Now, uh, just to wrap up, is there a safe a number of feet to plant an oak next to your house? Do you have uh, any advice on <laughs> You know, when you're planting your oaks young, I'm encouraging people to think less about that specimen tree, the one that's going to, you know, have a hundred foot crown spread and everybody's going to love it. 
and think more about groves of trees, two or three planted together, much closer than you would normally think about, because when they grow, they will interlock their roots and they will be almost impossible to blow over. It's the single tree that particularly in a wet period where the soil is really loose, its roots can't grab onto anything. And it's top heavy from being a big specimen tree. So over it goes. Those are the ones that are crushing your, your houses. If we plant our trees in little two or three member groves, you get to appreciate that grove visually as a unit, not as individuals within the unit. And it's much more stable, much more stable. How close do you want to put that to your house? You know, that's up to you. It depends on the size of your of your property. But we can lock our trees in and prevent so many of these blowdowns that we see just by changing the way we plant them. But again, you have to start with the young tree. So it gets to do that as the roots are growing. If you buy a 15 foot oak that's highly root pruned, it's probably gonna die anyway, because it takes a decade to try to rebuild those roots. It's not the time or the, or the way to get interlocking root systems. You wanna plant them young. Doug, I wanna thank you for joining us today on Bird Hugger. Very happy to be here. I'd like to thank Dr. Douglas Tallamy for joining us today. His books, Bringing Nature Home, Nature's Best Hope, and The Nature of Oaks, are published by Timber Press and are available at your local bookstores, as well as Amazon and the Barnes & Noble website. You can also go to his website, homegrownnationalpark.org, and put your backyard on the map. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.